We will be reading verses 4 through 7. And this is something new. As, as the new year begins, I wanted to try something new, and so we're, we're, we're trying it. Um, as we come to the sermon, will we please stand, if you're willing and able, for the reading of God's Word this morning? The Word of the Lord. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I wasn't going to have you stand for the whole sermon, or I'd have to <laughs> drastically cut it short. As we come to the close of another year, I'm hopeful that it's a time that we start asking ourselves a lot of questions. Questions like, what are our new goals? What are our wants and desires for this new year? How do we want to change? What do we want for our children? And typically, it gets easier when we think of our own personal goals. What did we learn from this past year? And how can that prepare us for success in the future? Where did we succeed? And also, where did we fail? And then I hope this leads to us taking a step even deeper into our souls and asking ourselves, this past year, what type of worshipers were we? If we truly believe that the chief end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever, how did we do in 2022? What, did, what type of disciples were we this past year? Have we truly ended this past year with our eyes fixed on Jesus? Do we wish we would have trusted God more and ourselves less? Do we wish we would have prayed more and worried less? Do we wish we would have repented more and justified ourselves less? Do we wish we would have served more and asked for less? Do we wish we would have loved more and be angry less? And I hope that we can now look outside of just ourselves and ask these same type of questions. How have we prayed for our children? How have we led our children that they might grow in their love for Jesus? How have we loved our spouse 
and encourage them to be faithful to Jesus. What type of church are we? How do we love our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ? How well have we encouraged them? How have we prayed for them? How have we served them? And as this new year begins, I hope these are questions that we ponder. What do we want to change about this next year? But as we ask ourselves these types of questions, we must consider the eternal question. For as much as we talk about new beginnings, new starts, startovers, goals, dreams, we must ask ourselves, what is it all for? Is everything that we do for the glory of God? Because the reality is that it will all come to an end. I don't want to be morbid on New Year's Day. But this is the truth that we all face Someday we will die, or Jesus will come back in the flesh. At some point, we will die. We, we can postpone a lot of things. We can postpone changing out light bulbs that have burnt out. We can postpone changing our oils when the oil light comes on. We can postpone folding that load of laundry that's been in the corner for a while. We can postpone responding to a text message that we should have responded to over a week ago. We cannot postpone our death. And as we ask ourselves these type of questions for this new year, the most important question we have to ask ourselves is, are we in Christ? Which is to say, have we been joined to Jesus by faith through the power of the Spirit of God. And as we will see this morning, Paul isn't writing to Titus to ask these questions. He isn't wanting the people of Crete, the church of Crete, to ask themselves these questions. He's actually writing to Timothy, believing he already knows the answer to this question. He's assuming that Titus already knows. But he's reminding Titus of this truth. You are in Christ if you've believed by faith. According to God's mercy and grace, you have received the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit by God's grace and faith. Regeneration is the technical and theological term used to speak of what God does when he reaches down to the lowest of our depths, to the lowest of our need, and by his grace, he takes that which is spiritually dead in its sin and transgression and makes us spiritually alive. We become reborn. And God enables us to receive all the benefits that he promised us, us in Jesus Christ. 
all that he has accomplished becomes ours. And not only should we ask ourselves this question, are we in Christ? But when we die, we will be asked this question. Are you in Christ? We will be asked, according to whose works, according to whose righteousness, are you to be justified? And the answer to this question changes everything. We can't change anything about our past. When we look at our goals from this past year, we, we can't change anything that we've done or let undone. In the same way, we can't look at our past and say, you know, God, I, re I really hope that you judge me based on this day and not this day. I was pretty good on this day. I wasn't very good on this day. We can't pick and choose the actions and the thoughts and the words that God looks at us and sees. But he will require us to give an answer. And what's at the heart of this passage is the grace of and the mercy of God himself. But what's even more spectacular about this passage is, at the heart of this passage, is the triune God himself. And as we look at this passage, I want us to see three things. I want us to see God. God for who he is and what he has done for us. The second is I want us to look at us. Who we are and how God sees us. And thirdly, we're going to look at the world. The world as we see them and the world as God sees them. We need to, first, we need to see God for who he is. Over this Christmas break, or over every Christmas break, the Kenyan household has a tradition of breaking out our favorite games. We love games. Card games, board games, we love it. But this, this past Christmas, one of our favorite games has been Apples to Apples. And if you aren't familiar with Apples to Apples, however many cards, there's, there's red cards and there's green cards. Everyone is given a red card. And on every red card, there's a noun. And they're, they're super random, super random. And we play the Disney version. Um, and so we, we have all these red cards with all these characters or things that are in Disney movies. And the purpose of the game is that someone draws a green card, and the green card has an adjective on it. And the purpose of the game is everyone is supposed to play a red card that is best described by the green card. But the person who reads the card doesn't know whose red card is whose. And they have to choose the best noun to describe that adjective. But here's the funny part. It is completely subjective. The person who read the card gets to decide what adjective describes what noun the best. Now, when Joel reads his card, he just goes for the funniest combination. 
So it doesn't matter what the adjective or the noun is. It matters on what is the funniest or what is the most obscure thing going together. When Calvin reads a card, you have, you have, you have to read the player. When Calvin reads a card, he's doing word association. You have to think of the first thing that came in his mind when he read his adjective. When Luke reads his card, he's playing by the rules. Because on every noun, there's a small description. And on every adjective, there's three helper words to help you to understand what that adjective is. And if your noun has something in the description that matches the adjective, that's it. That's the winning card. In 2022, I am the undisputed champion of this Kenyan game. I just, it has never happened before, and so I just want to put this out there. Look at these adjectives that Paul uses to describe God. Goodness. Loving kindness. Mercy. This is a picture of God. This is who God is in himself, in his divine being. These are his attributes. At the heart of our gospel is this God who loves us and gives himself up for us because this is who he is. He dispenses his mercy to us who don't deserve his love, but because of who he is, he gives it to us out of his love and his kindness. He does this first by giving us Jesus. Look at what Paul says in verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared. Paul uses this same language earlier in Titus. In, verse, in chapter 2, verse 11, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. This word appeared means to shine into a dark place, to provide illumination. The appearing of divine kindness and love is part of God's divine saving act. Here Paul is contrasting the way that the world acts with the way that God acts. Acts. God the Father is loving and kind and gracious and good. This is not the way that the world is. The world doesn't respond to people that are described in verse 3, we're going to look at just a little bit later. This God responds to this people, this kind of person, in this way. This God is not like us. He's merciful. How hard is it for us to show any type of mercy to anyone? How hard is it for us to show compassion to anyone? And Paul is tapping into a deep and long-standing scriptural consciousness of God's people. This is who God has always revealed himself to be. And this is our Savior. This is our Savior 
who, as John wrote, was light and came into the darkness. We devour ourselves. We lie to one another. We cheat and steal from one another. We are envious from one another, but that's not how God is. God is compassionate and good and loving. And he gave himself up for us. He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. Is this how you see Jesus? Is this how you see the holy triune God? As something wholly other? Something completely different than ourselves? Do you see that the basis of God's salvation for you is himself? His love, his kindness, his compassion, and his mercy in Christ. When you think of God, is this what you think of? Unfortunately, I think we, I believe we sometimes think of a schoolmaster who's just ready to discipline us at every move and every wrong thing we do. But our God is a God of mercy who has given us what we do not deserve by his grace and his mercy. This is seeing God for who he is. In this passage, I also want us to see us for who we are. Because Paul leaves nothing to the imagination. This is what he says in verse 5. There is nothing we have done, no righteousness in us to receive any type of salvation that deserves merit. And honestly, this is what our world hates the most about the Christian gospel. They want to understand themselves as good or righteous people, agents capable of sealing their own future. They want to be able to be themselves as God has created them, to be good enough or to earn, quote-unquote, salvation, whatever salvation for them might actually mean, although it's nothing biblical. But this view of the world of being a better person, being the better you, being true to yourself, completely misses the message of Scripture. For the message of Scripture, over and over again, tells us there's nothing inherently good in us. David said himself, they all have turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. There is nothing that we have our, done ourselves that enables us to have perfect communion with God. Now, this is not to say people can't do good things. A non-Christian parent can love their children in a good way. A non-Christian spouse can love their spouse in a good way. A non-Christian can live in a society and promote good things. But what Paul is getting at is that for us to have communion with God, 
our sin has to be dealt with, and there is nothing we can do to deal with our sin. Because of Adam and Eve's rebellion, we were transferred into a state, a realm of being, an ethical reality that all have fallen short of the glory of God. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, so death through sin and death spread to all men because all sinned. This is also what he says in 1 Corinthians 15. For as by one man came death, all men are in, all humankind are in Adam. But what the world is trying to do, what the world has tried to logically conceive of, is to create a new way of salvation. They are looking for a different way into their own heaven. They believe that if they just look inside deep enough, they can unlock their true selves and be right with God. But this is exactly what Paul is saying we cannot do. For that way of salvation, for the way of the world's salvation, denies the essence of the gospel in which Paul is trying to preach. Because in that gospel, we can become better people. It denies that we need Jesus. Because Jesus is the grace and mercy of God. And it also denies that we need the Holy Spirit. It denies that we need to be cleansed or washed because of our defilement to the holiness of God. You see, the world's gospel has nothing to do with the Christian gospel because the world's gospel has no place for Jesus. It has no place for the Holy Spirit. It has no place for God himself. It denies from beginning to end the Christian gospel. And here's what my fear is. Have we given way to the world? It's really easy to judge the world in their view of salvation. But it's really hard to try to create ways of salvation for ourselves. It's really hard to have a standard in our mind and our hearts for why we deserve God's love. But that person over there, they're way too evil to deserve God's love. Here's my other fear. Do we see ourselves as Paul describes us in this passage? Brothers and sisters, is this how we view ourselves? God saved us, not because of anything that we have done, but because he is gracious and merciful in Jesus Christ. We have been justified. We have been made right. There is nothing more that we can add to our own salvation. It is finished. It is accomplished in Christ. This is what Paul says in Romans 5. This is why we use Romans 8.1 all the time in our assurance of pardon. There is therefore now, right now, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
You see, if we're able to work our way into salvation, we don't need Jesus. But this is how Paul describes us. That through this grace and this mercy, through this goodness and compassion of this holy God, he has regenerated us. He has taken what is dead and made us alive by his spirit. He has renewed us. He has taken our old selves, which is described in verse 3, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He has taken that person and has made it our old self and has given us a new self in Christ Jesus. This is who we are now. And he, and he gets better. We have become heirs of eternal life. Not because of anything that you have done, but because of the grace and the mercy of the great God who sent Jesus, his only son, and then sent his Holy Spirit to give you everything that Christ has accomplished for you. By grace you have been saved. This is the core of the Christian message of the gospel. This is the biblical understanding of union with Christ. And a part of that union is our regeneration. Part of that union is our justification. If you've placed your faith in the risen Christ, you are righteous before God. You are loved. You are an heir. You are a son and a daughter because of Christ's love of you. This is life in the spirit. This is what Joel longed to see. That the spirit would be poured out. This is the same word that Paul uses. The spirit has been poured upon us. Lavishly. Far greater than we ever deserved. We deserved nothing. For him to give us just a little would have been enough. But he lavished us with God, the Holy Spirit, he gave us himself. And we've been made new. We've been washed. All because of that work of God, the Holy Trinity. If we are to be God's people, this is the truth that we must understand. This is what we must know. This is what we should hold most dear. That Christ who died for us was raised for our justification. That our faith saves. Not our decision to have faith in something, but the substance of what our faith is in. Christ crucified and raised from the grave. Our faith in Christ saves. 
And this is our new beginning. This is our new life that is offered in the gospel. Its origin is in the goodness and the mercy of God, freely offered for everyone to hear, but for us to accept by faith. This is what's true for Titus. This is what's true for the church at Crete. And this is what's true for us this morning. As we look at our baptisms, which is a symbol of this regeneration, of this washing, of this cleansing, that everyone who comes up here, guess what? None of us deserve it. But because of God's grace and mercy, he lavishes us. He pours his spirit upon us. He washes us clean with the blood of Jesus. This is a sign of his great grace and compassion for us. And it's also a seal for our inheritance. As surely as you have been baptized, God's promises are true for you. And guess what? It doesn't rely upon you. It relies upon God himself. This is how God sees us. United to his son. But as much as all of that is true, that's not what this passage is mainly about. It reveals to us who God really is. It reveals to us how we should really see ourselves in Christ. But the purpose of this passage is the imperative, the indicative of what is true of who God is and how we should see ourselves, the imperative of what we should now do. And this is how we are supposed to see the world. Since we've been united with Christ by the grace and mercy of God, and since we've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit, we are now called to do what? To judge and ridicule this world? Or to show the same type of grace and mercy that we have been shown? Paul is writing to Titus to establish a new type of ethic. A new type of Christian living. Paul is calling them to a profound way of life. That just as we ourselves outside of any righteousness that we have ever done, we have been accepted by God. And this gospel is true for everyone in the world who still lives as though they're foolish and disobedient, led astray, and are slaves to various passions. Since we have been renewed, since we have put off our old self, since we have been washed with the Holy Spirit, Since we've been given everything when we deserve nothing. Paul is telling Titus, this is how you once were. You better show mercy and grace to them. Because they're just like you. Those are the people who need, who need to see who need to hear that God is merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. 
those people out there, they need Jesus. Just the same way we need Jesus. And so we have to ask ourselves all of these types of questions. But the most important, are we in Christ? On January 1st, 2023, I hope you can say a definite yes. Not because of any work that you have done, but by the grace and mercy of a compassionate God. Look to your baptisms to remember God's grace and mercy for you. Receive God's grace when you taste and see that the Lord is good. And look to the world with the same type of compassion, the same type of mercy, and the same type of love that Christ has loved you with. And here's what's Here's the stinger. You'll never be able to do it. You'll never be able to do it. You'll never be able to love them with compassion and mercy and grace if you don't know compassion, mercy, and grace that has come and offered to you in Jesus. If you don't know the gospel, if you don't know the heart of our triune God for you, the Christian life is impossible. Being a disciple of Jesus is impossible, but by grace you have been saved and you've been called to new life in Christ. He is our only hope. Let's pray.